0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today we're going to do a State of the Union for English cricket. Now it's been a, a magical summer so far. You've had England winning the World Cup at home for the first time ever. You've had Ireland's first ever Test match at Lord's. We're right bang in the middle of a, a competitive Ashes series. And yet there's an underlying sense of melancholy in in that they won the World Cup in the most brilliant, spectacular way, and yet it didn't break through the barrier. It didn't, you know, it enthused, you know, diehard cricket fans. I think it got to, I don't know, casual cricket fans. I don't think it really made much of an impact into people who weren't huge cricket fans. as much as it was successful in putting it up, the final on you know domestic television what happened is is that for all the success it obviously anytime you get you know viewing figures somewhere in the vicinity of sort of 10 11 million people that's fantastic that shows you that there is still a place for cricket as a national sport as the national summer sport but what it also means is that there was nowhere else for it to go. In other words, you have the final, brilliant, happy days, they've won. But then next week, you've got a test match, four-day test match against Ireland. A couple of weeks later, you then have the Ashes. There, There was no way to really build upon it, whereby really what you actually needed was the first game of the Cricket World Cup to have that kind of impact, which would then allow you to build it up. In other words, it's too little too late You know, on Friday afternoon to say, oh, by the way, we're going to show this on domestic television. But also, it's going to go up against the Wimbledon men's final. It's also going to go up on the British Grand Prix. And so, while it is going to be on terrestrial television, about midway through the final, we're going to move it from Channel 4 to More 4, at which point you will lose and you know from what i've read it's you know the broadcast lost some viewers in the in that switchover. and the problem now i would say with the british grand prix is that the british grand prix of 2019 is not in the same i suppose bracket of importance that it once was the British Grand Prix of the 90s and maybe early 2000s would have been a huge deal and it really wouldn't have been a great idea to have put those events head to head. I think to a certain extent you know the Formula 1 has faded a bit in the public in public eye and specifically that of the average British sports fan now, I used to watch lots of Formula One in the 90s. I haven't really paid much attention, you know, for about 10, 15 years. Yeah, I know vaguely what's going on, and I'll read the little bits and pieces in the Evening Standard, but it's important to note that it's always at the back bit of the sports section. You know, football comes first, You know, rugby, cricket, all of these other bits and pieces, sports, will come first. Even, you know athletics even, you know, it's a couple of times hockey. It's there, but you have to read for everything else to get there. And really it's the same kind of thing, you know, you know that there are really two or three, you know, solid teams, the rest are kind of mid level, the you know, there isn't as much overtaking, and Lewis Hamilton, you know, is dominant. And, you know, it's not in the same, I suppose, narrative. As you know, the battles between Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher, or Jack Villeneuve and Michael Schumacher, all of those you know storylines that I think captured the imagination in a way that right now, you know, with an elongated schedule, you know, I can see why it's no longer as sits as large as it once did. We've really, from the nineties to the present day, what we've come up against is that each sport used to have its own section of time when it would be you know prime time so the football season would really start in you know mid-august and then by early may that it would be over then you know you'd have the international cricket season you would then have the grand prix you had a couple of weeks for wimbledon You'd have the odd you know, you have a Lions tour once every four years. It was kind of fairly balanced. Each sport would have its period of time when it would be you know the dominant you know the dominant event within the sporting consciousness, which then meant that if you were a sports fan, because there wouldn't be any football going on in June, July, unless there was a major tournament, and even those major tournaments didn't last as long as they do now the co- the coverage wasn't as saturated but now you have you know the, the women's world cup you have the euro nation and you're getting to the point now where the football season is still going strong into june and you know parts of july then you'll get pre-season tours all of which is slowly but surely creeping in which then means that you know if you a casual cricket fan, but you're a really big football fan, there's now more than ever, you know, something that's going to feed your interest. You've got, you know, the transfer speculations, which you can follow minute by minute, hour by hour, whereby, you know, 15, 20 years ago, yeah, you'd pick up the newspaper and read the rumours section, but it was, that was it. You were able to put football away, and if you just wanted to watch, you know, you'd have the tennis on, you'd have a test match on, and that would then you know give you you'd be more inclined to fit that into your schedule and in a way i i am saddened by it in the sense that there's much less to bring us all together in other words as much as i enjoyed elements of the euro nations as much as i absolutely loved the women's world cup it didn't bring all football fans together you know, some people watched it, some people didn't, some people dipped in and out. Whereby, if you compare it to something, let's say like the 20, 2005 Ashes, which was able to grip a nation. Because we all had an understanding, even if we weren't huge cricket fans, that Australia had been dominant from the you know 90s through to the early 2000s. They'd won Cricket World Cups, we hadn't had the Ashes you know, since the 80s. It was an easy narrative for people to understand and to get into that actually, this England team over the past, you know, the previous sort of two years to 18 months had been getting better and better, getting pushed up the rankings, had been, you know, beating all comers, and this was going to be a fantastic chance. That you knew that there was a sense that maybe, you know, Glenn McGraw, maybe Shane Warren, this would possibly be their last ashes over here. And that this young upstart team could well, you know, have were well, England's best chance to you know regain the Ashes, and so it's proven. And I think it's it's important to note that had England had the success they've had at this World Cup in nineteen ninety nine, the last time that we had previously hosted the World Cup, that would have been just huge news. It would have just absolutely. You know, would have kept everyone's imagination. It would have, you know, all of these players would be, you know, national heroes. And yet, at the moment, in the world of sports, specifically in this country, that's not the case. I mean, had you explained to the ECB, let's say, nine months before the tournament, that You'd have an England team with obviously Jofra Archer bursting onto the scene, bowling mid nineties effortlessly, you know, using bouncers, using yorkers, and then matched up with you know Mark Wood, who had been you know sort of injury prone, and had now finally managed to get a run of games in. You know his body was cooperating for once. And the sense that, obviously, Jofra Archer has then, you know, had qualified for England. And this was, you know, just in time for the World Cup. You then had the you know, Owen Morgan story about, you know, growing up in Ireland and then, you know, becoming a cricket superstar and then playing for England. You know, you would have, there were so many different storylines for each player. You know, Johnny Burstows, you know you know, struggling to, you know, firstly get into the one day team to you know persuade, you know, everyone that he was able to play as an opener. You know, you had Jason Roy's situation where and you know, obviously growing up in a different country, moving over here and then, you know, going through the surrey ranks and again proving himself as a you know destructive opening batsman. And also, you then had you know you had the injury struggles. You know, would Jason Roy be you know back in time, and just the sheer difference that it made when him and Bersto were at the top of the order. You then had you know Josh Butler's skills that have been, you know, shown all across the world, and this was now finally you know the general public were going to be able to see this as well. You had you know Owen Morgan's you know fantastic you know sixes you know six hitting extravaganza you know against afghanistan and the fact that there was an afghanistan cricket team there was so much going on in this world cup that just wasn't grasped by people because it because it was day games it was a, a long tournament it you know over the 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 length of the cricket world cup there was so much criticism and so much I think anguish from actual proper cricket fans about well, it's you know there's too many games there's, it needs to you know there wasn't as many competitive games there were so many or there wasn't enough teams you should let teams like Ireland Scotland, play in these World Cups it is that in the end I think you, you, you actually missed out on the joy of the actual tournament itself there is no. Way that you can create a format that is going to please everybody, in the sense that if you go for an enlarged tournament, that means that you're going to have more games. You know, obviously, if you let some of the developing nations in, yes, there's you know, it's you you can't expect, you know, uh, you know if you look take Afghanistan, they qualified you know deservedly. And although they, you know, pushed India, you know, close, they performed admirably, they were still, you know, bottom and bottom by quite a, you know, distance. And I have an element of sympathy for the tournament organisers in the sense that there was, you know, with India, with England, and with, you know, to a lesser extent, Australia, you did have you know three, you know high end teams. Although Australia had you know really greatly struggled in the sort of previous eighteen months, you know, to two years, you could see that it was a classic Australian thing. In the, you know the run up to the tournament, they then started to, you know to find themselves to get some results. They won out in India, and before you knew it, you know. They'd rocked up to the tournament and they were as, you know, dangerous as they ever have been. And what you then had was really a second tier of nations with South Africa, Pakistan, New Zealand, you know, the West Indies to a and you know, Sri Lanka, who all on their day, you know, could perform. And could string together some results, and I think the expectation of just having one, you know, round robin table was that it would be a dogfight, and it's not their fault that that you know, outside of you know the West Indies' fantastic first result against Pakistan, you know they you know, struggled to put together performances until really it was too late. But, you know, they were unfortunate to lose to. New Zealand in a sort of heartbreaker. You then had South Africa, who... who never got going. And I think my sympathies with with South Africa is that... they were in a no-win position in the sense that... they've lost so much talent with the call-pack ruling of these players who... You know, have gone to England because you can you know make more money more consistently than you would if you're trying to break into a very talented South Africa team so they've lost an amount of talent and you really and you were caught really between the sort of the rock and the hard place of do you try and build a brand new team knowing that you're unlikely to you know compete at the higher end of the world cup against your england's your india's and your australia or do you just try and get as much you know talent as you possibly can do and just go at it knowing that obviously you know hishima amla you know dale stane and really what muddied the water was was ab de villiers now A.P. de Villiers has been a, a fantastic player. I mean, in all forms of the game, he's a brilliant athlete. He's pushed the sport on, and he's been a fantastic servant for South African cricket. But obviously, for someone who's been you know, such an integral part of all three of their formats for such an extended period of time, you know, there's always going to be an element of you know, burnout. You know, you're travelling such huge distances. And he then, with the yeah you know, rise of the t20 league and he was such a huge draw naturally he would play the ipl he would play in the you know big bash he would then play in the blast he would then play in you know the west indies eventually something had to give and you know retiring from you know, test matches after you know, winning at home in you know that tumultuous, but at the same time brilliant series with the Australians that was marred with sandpaper gate. You know, that was someone retiring at the top. Now at the time there was this sense of you know all you have to do is really cling on for a little bit longer, and then you can have this magical, you know, last World Cup in England. But I can understand. Someone decide a player not wanting to have to go through such a long period of you know constantly traveling, constantly pushing your body to the absolute limits. You know, mentally, physically, emotionally, you know, being away from your family. So I can understand his retirement, and yet just before the tournament starts, the competitiveness probably came back, and the idea of you know, look, if you need me. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I'm available for selection. But it's that classic one where a player does it so close to the start of the tournament that it, it really it's you're putting the ball in into the administrators, into the selector's court. And really what could they do? Is that you try and create a culture for the South African cricket where, you know, playing every game, you know, not picking and choosing which it is an option that would be open to some of the better players. Because obviously you can make such large amounts of money so quickly for a few weeks' work in the domestic, you know, T20 leagues across the world. Yeah, you know, the idea, you know, the Peterson-esque chasing the sun. In other words, you can do, you know, a summer out in Australia, you can then do the you know, you can then move on to South Africa, you can move on to the West Indies, you can do the British summer at the blast. All each time, so in other words, very few of the tournaments overlap, and there's still time to play, you know, here and there, international cricket. So I can understand the South African selectors and the South African board deciding that it was too little, too late, and not to select him. In terms of creating a culture, that was the correct decision to make. In terms of how that actually affected the team and their performances of the World Cup, it was really the last nail in the coffin. They're an aging side, and they needed that level of experience, that and skill, and also I think the narrative boost that that would have given in terms of Ab Villiers in his last, you know, after all those heartbreaking, you know, defeats that South Africa have gone through. You know, at the later stages of tour, always being the bridesmaid, never the bride. And I think it would have been a fantastic ending and it would have been a fantastic story for the sport of cricket. Sometimes I think you need to focus on the sport itself rather than the minutiae of detail. In other words, A.B. de Villiers you know, playing fantastic cricket shots in a World Cup to a global audience is probably better for the sport and for the South African team than you know, whatever internal battles you're trying to do in terms of getting a team that is playing every single you know series that isn't, you know, mixing and matching. It was an ageing team, and it needed, you know, A, B, if it really was going to have any chance of winning. I think one of the things that is so magical and... I suppose, beguiling and at the same time frustrating about cricket, specifically, I suppose, English cricket, is there's always this kind of battle between the international, the domestic, the traditional cricket fan, the casual cricket fan, trying to you know really boost and build the game back to where it once was, in terms of being a frontline sport that is that is watched by the majority of sports fans rather than the majority of hardcore cricket fans. And there's always this sense that the the ECB are always trying to chase the next the next big thing. So in other words they have you know focused so much on the 50 overside to try and you know have some success at the the home World Cup that they've just had, they won and they've achieved everything. You, know, the, the, you could call this England team the Harry Potter team, in the sense that Harry Potter is I've never read it, but my understanding of Harry Potter is is that it's well written, but that the length of the book is sort of four or five hundred pages per book, and really what it is is that. There's so much to cram into it, is that whatever kid would pick it up wherever they are in the world would find some element of Harry Potter that would appeal to them. And this is what the, you know, World Cup winning England team have. Everyone has a storyline. You know, the actual. Arc of the tournament itself. In yeah, they started really well. They had the struggle in the middle. They then had to you know they had the will they won't they with the injury crisis. It makes it would make a fantastic Mighty Ducks film. It would make a brilliant Disney kids sports movie. And eventually they all come together and have this mag- this brilliant, amazing final with you know, twists and turns. And eventually you know the good guys have won. But what you now have is is that the 50-over game has... You know, the domestic tournament next year is going to be really downgraded to, effectively, a second-tier tournament. It's not going to have many first-team players. It's not going to have a set-piece Lord's Final. And really now what they're moving on to is you know, the 100. You have the blast because now your next big tournament is the... T 20 world cup and obviously you know you want england to win they got to the final last time but the problem that that has is that there's always going to be another tournament there's always going to be something that you need to focus on and the idea that england needs to win now yes that is the you know raison d'etre but there also has to be some way that you can't just be constantly you know having something you know pushed to the background in other words at the moment you know 50 overs is now not as important and now t20 is the most important but obviously that means that you then lose the you know the test team ends up getting to an extent marginalized. So right now we're in the middle of the ashes, but because this is the middle of the T20 blast, there's no county championship 4-day games, very few of them. So there's no real way for anybody who was looking to you know break into the team. So in other words, if there was uh, an injury to a batsman, if there was an injury to a bowler, it's you know that much harder, you know, you know this is what they're saying really with James Anderson. The problem that I have with him at the moment is that He needs to play to prove that he is fit so that he can then be reselected, hopefully, you know, for maybe the third, fourth or fifth test. But the problem at the moment is, is that there's virtually no games. So you'd either have to rely on a second team game, which is going to be kids and scrumps, or, you know, you might have to loan him to a different county. It might be division two, or you might then have to have him play against a touring Australian team, which could then, you know, would have implications. It's that much harder. You know, it's difficult really if there was, you know, to try and if you needed a new opener because, you know, these players haven't been playing cricket. Much in the same way that, you know, they've dropped Moon Alley, they've brought in Jack Leach. Because Jack Le- Leach isn't playing in the Somerset, you know, T twenty team, he's virtually had no real major frontline cricket. You know, he had the one, you know, test match against Ireland, but he didn't bowl in the second innings, didn't bowl a huge amount in the first innings, the game was over in sort of two, three days. And actually, the most yeah you know, he got out of that test match was you know scoring ninety two while opening the batting as a night watchman, which isn't really a you know it's lovely and it's a fantastic story and it's interesting, but at the same time it's not of benefit. Is that what you Jack Leach is in the team to get out Australians as a spinner? You know anything he gets you with the bat is you know just gravy, but that's not you know, what is required, and he's not in a, being put in, in a position where he can, you know, legitimately succeed. And to an extent, you know, this is where the problem with the test team is, is that the coaching philosophy of, you know, Bayless is perfect for one-day international cricket. And it has succeeded, he has taken the, you know, the team that was awful, and you know struggled mightily in australia and new zealand four years later they've won the tournament and not only that is that for two two and a half three years they've been consistently one of the best teams they have pushed the sport on and the thing is is that the element of control that you have in one day international cricket because it is straightforward you back you then field or you field and then you bat it's always 50 overs yeah obviously you can have you know yeah, rain delays you can have shortened game but because you play so much t20 you know that's not a that's not a a disadvantage and so really the control that you have allows you to be laissez-faire it allows you to have you know a one size fits all philosophy in other words, you attack. And because you have players that have got the skill set now with the rise of T20 and the skill sets that you need to succeed have then you know been extrapolated to the fifty over game. No, in the fifty over game you tend to have you know flat pitches. You know, the boundaries are brought in the way how england have played and one of the most impressive things about this one day international team is the success that they've had abroad. So they've won series out in India, they've won series out in Australia, they won in New Zealand. They've, you know, been competitive all across, all around the world. But the problem is is that that just shows you you know just how and I don't want to say simple, but how straightforward you know, the 50-over game is. If you have the skills that England have and the playing stuff, so you have your Josh Butlers, your Jason Roys, Owen Morgan, you have a... who are, you know, power hitters. You can... who So, in other words, you're not giving away huge amounts of wickets in the first 10 overs, but at the same time, Roy and Bairstow are going at 7-8. They're one of the best and strongest historically now, opening partnerships in one-day international cricket. And as a result, teams are trying to, you know, catch up. And now with, you know, the advent of, you know, Mark Wood with Joffrey Archer, you then have, you know, pace bowling that can mitigate the effects of these flat pitches. So England were able to take wickets. Their fielding has been, you know, you know, it has been strong but really when you look at it there isn't a huge amount of depth the problem that you had once Jason Roy picked up an injury is that you then had James Vince who is a perfectly you know talented you know fantastic domestic cricketer came in and wasn't able to you know really succeed and England looked a completely more vulnerable and a different team without Jason Roy. Yeah, the only other, you know, really frontline batsman that had that international skill was was Alex Hales, and you then had the trials and tribulations of the that came firstly from the Ben Stokes incident. He had problems with his personal life, with his, you know, salacious rumours about his, you know having affairs cheating on his girlfriend which which I hesitate to bring up because that's a personal life issue but the problem was is that these stories were coming out while England were on tour and were said to have affected the group you then had the nightmare situation of him failing a drugs test and the difficulties that the ECB had with that in that there was a, a sense of they were kind of effectively promising him that they could hush it up and that it shouldn't be a problem with the inevitable that the second that it came out publicly that you know it wasn't a tenable strategy there was always going to be you know an element of controversy to it and inevitably you know he was dropped and it's unlikely that he's going to make a return to you know frontline international cricket mm. Without there being some, you know, element of change, maybe in terms of the captain, with possibly Owen Morgan or with the coaching staff. Never say never, but he's always going to now have a you know black pencil mark next to his name in the register. And so, when you compare the success that England have had abroad with their one day team all across the world. You then compare that to the success or the lack of success that they've had. You know, touring with regards to the test team shows you just how much more nuance and strategic thinking that you need. And that it's a question of you know, allocation of resources and what team that you want to put out onto the field, how you want to win, how you think you're going to win. And at the moment with this kind of laissez-faire, when it works, great. But, but it's you know too inconsistent. I think it was notable that you know one of our last major successes as a touring team was out in Sri Lanka, where Baylis and Farbrace, the coach and the assistant coach, had basically spent lots of years coaching you know the Sri Lankan national team and had an element of local knowledge that they were then able to utilize and they were able to then formulate a plan you know using Leach using Brian Ali using Adil Rashid that was able to be successful they then brought in folks because he's a fantastic wicketkeeper and and they caught a Sri Lanka team that is very much you know in turmoil and you saw elements of where how Sri Lanka could improve, and they ha- they are now on an upward curve. They went out and won in South Africa, which was a huge shock. They produced some fantastic, you know, partnerships in chasing down you know, a huge fourth innings total that nobody expected with this kind of massive ninth inning partnership, which was amazing, and it was a shame that it didn't really permeate to this you know the casual cricket fan, unfortunately and that's one of the issues that really hopefully you know the test championship should allow allow these you know series an actual an actual cause so in other words it's not just you know playing cricket for the hell of it mm-hmm. it's actually oh if Sri Lanka win then they can then you know push on towards trying to get to the test championship final which then gives you a reason to sort of follow it, rather than just following it because you know for the love of the game. Which in of itself creates a an intriguing, I suppose, argument is that we are so, in some ways, we are unhappy with elements of the huge commercialization of the Premier League, with the amount of money that's gone into the sport, with. You know, controversies over, you know, betting sponsorship, you know, the money that has come in from foreign owners. There's so many bits and pieces that people say are distasteful. And I hear this all the time from what I'd say sort of casual football fans. And they will then bring up something like, you know, rugby and the differences in terms of the lack of, I suppose ego and the you know lack of commercialization that is so much obvious in premier league football that you don't necessarily see in premier league rugby although i would always argue that premier league rugby and that rugby as a whole is moving towards the you know football model rather than away from it whether you like it or not what the premier league has shown is that it's getting more viewers more money more sponsorship and more interest and that really it's hard pressed to see a way that you know rugby domestic rugby could go a different way so do we so do we give credit to the element that cricket still has a historical link to the, to this m- almost semi-mythological bygone age where you just play cricket for the sake of it and that the sort of and the majesty of test cricket in a way is its lack of lack of pretense in other words it can take 5 days and it still be a draw. There are some bits of it that aren't, you know, viscerally thrilling in the same way that a ninety-minute football game is in terms of the highs and lows. And that actually, it takes more. It takes more time. It takes more patience. It's. It's where you can take, I suppose, the ever relenting pace of modern life and of things like you know saturation coverage. And instead, so just sit for you know five, six, seven, eight hours at Lords, you know, just waiting for something to happen, and whether that's actually a more happier way of watching sports than it would be if you were you know sitting there watching you know Man when watching Man City absolutely destroy someone because they have to get to a hundred points, and if a team doesn't win for three games, they have to sack the coach, whereby. A test series allows for, you know, you can, it's a a sport that is still profoundly based on failure. In other words, even the best players will get ducks, even the best bowler can be hit for six. I personally very much see cricket as a sport of mindfulness. It's a way that learn about different cultures it brings people together it brings people of different skill sets in other words whereby if you look at something if you compare it to its sort of cousin sport baseball its sister sport you know what you have with baseball is is that you're now getting very much a one-size-fits-all in other words the 30 major league teams all have you know very similar front offices and general managers and who then hire, you know, field managers who do very much the same kind of bits and pieces. Mm. So they, they look, they think the same way, they act in the same way, they value players in the same way. And the sport is very much becoming a less broad church. In other words, the pitchers are all, you know, well into you know, the mid-90s. Home runs are being hit at an absolutely massive pace. And really, it's becoming almost a three-outcome sport. It's home run, walk, or a strikeout. Whereby cricket is still completely different. You can have, you know, spin bowlers. You can, you know, off-spin and leg-spin. Right-handers, left-handers, small guys, big guys. You have powerful, you know, hitters. And then you have people that, you know, score, you know, at really slow rates. Who are just getting singles here and there. And... It's different cultures. In other words, you know, to win a test series out in India requires a completely different skill set than to win out in South Africa and to win out in Australia. And it's always constantly that international cricket offers you these stylistic differences within a sport that is, you know, contemplative rather than viscerally action filled. I mean, Test cricket and one-days and T20s, they still have the power to captivate us, to shock us. And there is moments when, you know, in a run chase, where your heart will be beating as if you were in the last minute of a football game or a penalty shootout. It still has that quality, but from a completely different standpoint. In other words, we all sit together at the cricket. You don't have, you know you don't have segregation. It's a place where you can have a conversation with a person sitting next to you without having known that. And that's where cricket doesn't really sell itself in that regards. It's still considered this kind of fusty sport, which is just... Which I can get why it has that image, and it, you know, it's to crickets and to, let's say, the ECB and to the ICC's detriment that they have lost... Sight of how to—I don't want to say use the word sell or market, but how to place the game within the sporty the world of sports. The inability to to really to explain how special this sport is is that you can have a sport that can encompass the skills and of hitting in T Twenty which requires you know, fantastic hand to eye coordination. It requires, you know, brutal power with you know finesse and timing. You need to be a good fielder. You know, you need to have all rounders that can contribute in all forms of the game and you have to make, you know, tactical decisions very quickly. And then test matches which are you know, completely opposite end of the spectrum where you need you know where you need dedication. I mean, when you have, you know, batsmen such as, you know, Stephen Smith, Kane Williamson, Vera Kohli, Joe Root, really at the heart of, you know, some of the major cricketing nations, either as captains or as senior batsmen, and all of the different styles, you know, Joe Root is a beautiful player to watch. Steve Smith less so, but then Steve Smith is just compelling viewing in that this is someone with a a technique that has been really chiselled out. This is someone who has thought so deeply, so obsessively about the game, about his own position within the game, within Australian cricket and the importance that his wicket now has become. That means that that while stylistically it's not particularly fun to watch, it's amazing that no matter what teams throw at him, you know, 96-mile-an-hour Joffre Archer, spin, different field settings, that you simply, he can bat for 11, 12, 13 hours, score bucket loads of runs that change test matches, that can change series. Cricket is fantastic box set, viewing. You know, it can take a whole summer and you still don't know how it's going to end if, you know, from a, a series that started in June that can end in early September. You know, it's a sport that can bring different cultures together. This is one of the I think the most underrated elements of the Cricket World Cup that we have just hosted was that you've had you know, hundreds and thousands of supporters who don't really who don't play a huge role in a domestic game, so in terms of going to T twenty blast games, going to county games, but to see the passion when they were following Pakistan, Sri Lanka, the Safas, you know, Afghanistan's fans, and to see the India versus Pakistan game at Old Trafford and just how much it meant to both sides, and how it how it can lead to a Pause, in what has been such a you know, turbulent political period that you know India and Pakistan ha- have gone through that that can all be put on hold for seven to eight hours, while everyone just stops and watches this game, and that everyone can sit together without there being problems. And as much as I want to believe that something like the the hundred, which is the new limited overs version of T20 that the ECB has developed and that they're going to bring in next summer at kind of huge expense in a way to try and capture the to recapture the public's love for the game, because it's going to be on you know, domestic television, not the whole tournament, just I think it's only maybe 8, nine, ten games, but to me personally, I think that if you actually want to If you want to bring the game back to the people, to the British people, I think you have to start at Test Cricket and really go from there. Because Test Cricket is, it's a a cliche to say it's the most purest form of the game, but it is the toughest, the one that requires the most skill, that produces the best challenges. And my next podcast is really going to be a a set of ideas on how we can really bring Test Match Cricket back to the, the fore, to get it into a place where the ordinary sports fan can, in Britain at least, can fall back in love with the game. And a, a gateway for, you know, for the international market to see what we see, the people, you know, because and it needs to do that what we need is a sense of imagination and a sense of determination not to get bogged down in our in our sort of political ideologies that you can get with sports. You have the traditionalists you have the modernizers. you have the people that want it to remain the same game that if you had it took a Victorian in a time machine that they would immediately be able to recognise the sport. And then you have the modernists on one side who would sit there and change absolutely everything until which point you'd almost be hard-pressed to see, you know, what, is this still Test Match cricket? If you know, Is it Test Match cricket if it's three days or four days? All the sense that, you know, the melancholy that I talked about earlier in the podcast, that there is always this sense of, you know, no one being fully happy and everyone, you know, complaining. You know, oh, well, it wasn't this, it wasn't that, it's, you know, whereby I think in the end what that does is sort of poison the well so that people constantly see test cricket as this declining, hopelessly forlorn anachronism from the Victorian age that doesn't have any relevance in the modern world when really actually if you look at where people are going in terms of you know millennials in terms of you know different ways that we that we you know view media and the way how we entertain ourselves is that you've never had a period of time where a modern you know technologically focused viewership couldn't fall in love with test cricket if you're going to sit there and spend a whole evening binge watching for six hours the same television show episode after episode after episode well what's the difference between spending an entire saturday afternoon in front of the ashes if we're all talking about mindfulness in terms of switching off our devices and talking to people well if you have a sport in which you can sit in the pub and talk to a complete stranger about the you know, status of the game, if you can do that at Lords, and if it can bring together vastly different parts of the population, you know, northerners, Scottish people, Irish people, Welsh people, people from the southwest, people from London people, rural, you have that sport. If it can bring together people from different, you know, ethnic backgrounds, all loving the same thing, all having an opinion, there's far more positivity than there is, you know, negativity. It's test match cricket isn't doomed. It's doomed if you constantly if you retain a narrow purview. So if you say as a broadcaster, well I have this contract, I've spent all of this money, we can't possibly, you know, show the product in a you know terrestrial environment because we will lose money. Well, but you've had a situation with the Cricket World Cup final that showed you that 10, 12, 15 million people can be wrapped by this game. And that there's no point just retaining the 300,000 people that have always watched Test Match Cricket, who will watch it whether it's on BBC Channel 4 or Sky Sports, when there are millions of people as was shown in the 2005 Ashes. We need to have this sense of being able to start telling stories. To being able to really explain, instead of the intricacies of cricket, Mm -hmm. what it actually means to us as fans. And just to let you on a little teaser for my next podcast, I'm going to argue that England should play a home Ashes Test match in New York City. Thank you for listening.